Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we take a closer look at Michigan Opera Theater's upcoming production of Twilight Gods, a one-of-a-kind adaptation of Wagner's Gottdämmerung conceived specifically for this moment. Part live performance, part immersive installation, audiences remain in their cars to experience scenes from the final opera of Wagner's Ring Cycle on various levels of the Detroit Opera House parking structure. This bold new production connects Wagner's mythical world with the here and now of our city and our time. We'll be joined today by two special guests, Sean Panikar, who will be playing the production's hero, Siegfried, and Marsha Music, who contributed new writ material to Twilight Gods and whose voice we'll hear as the Earth Goddess, Erda. But before we get to our guests, we want to talk a little bit about the Ring Cycle more generally and about this specific production. Um, Arthur, how excited are you to see Twilight Gods? Well, you know, let me tell you, you know, the ring is one of those things that, you know, few companies can usually mount. It's a, it takes a huge cast. You have to have the world's, you know, greatest Wagnerians to pull this off, a huge orchestra. Uh, and we just have not done a lot of Wagner at MOT. Uh, we did the Flying Dutchman, when a wonderful production uh, just a few years ago. So uh, being able to do even one of the operas of the ring is a, a great thrill. Yeah, I, I really cannot wait. Um, this will be, I mean, I know the music of The Ring and I know the story, um, but this will be my first uh, live production of The Ring. And I'm really thrilled that it's such a, a unique production, a, such a one-of-a-kind type thing that gets to be, you know, my live introduction to this Ring Cycle. So I'm very excited to see that, you know, Yuval Sharon and MOT are branching out at this time and, uh, um, and taking this new direction and doing something really exciting. These six months that we've, you know, all kind of been quarantining in the midst of this shutdown, you know, I and so many people, I know I'm not alone, are just really hungry for performance, however we can get it. You are so correct. You know, so often we're talking about some of the things we've lost or missed uh, as a result of this very necessary social distancing. Uh, but here's an opportunity to bring an opera that we have not done uh, and bringing it to our parking structure, offering something completely new in way of venue and perfect timing with our new artistic director, Yuval Sharon. So I am just uh, over the moon about this production. Same. And I have to just, you know, really take my hat off to Yuval for such an amazing vision and to the crew and the production team at MOT who are putting this all together. I mean, from, you know, singers to musicians outdoors to, you know, reconfiguring and reconceiving what our parking structure is like in terms of lighting, in terms of projection. It's just incredible. And I have to admit, Arthur, I, I have been laughing, but like delightedly laughing when I hear Yuval referring to uh, choreography which of course is how everyone will be, uh, you know, our audience will be maneuvering through through this piece, you know, safely in their own cars, um, having their own space and their own air, but still being able to have this communal experience. I think that it's just so exciting and so fantastic. I agree. You know, we're one of the few opera companies, uh, some are saying maybe, maybe one of three opera companies that are able to do performances, putting our own parking structure, able to be able to still do this performance outside. It is indeed a, a special time. Definitely. And, you know, your reference to Detroit, um, you know, just 
makes me so excited to uh, to speak with Marsha Music today. You know, she is such a Detroit legend. Um, having her specific voice and her stamp on what this project is and providing that poetic material and that narration, I think is just another kind of cherry on top of what this project is to bring so many artists together, so many disciplines together, um, and to truly root this, you know, this specific Twilight Gods, this Gato Damarung, um, in the place of Detroit and in this current moment. Um, I think that's all just spectacular. So I think all that being said, Arthur, um, let's get right into it. You know, the, as you mentioned, this is the first time that Michigan Opera Theater is producing um, The Ring Cycle or a piece of The Ring Cycle. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, a little bit of the story of The Ring. Um, what do our audiences need to know as they come to Gotterdammerung? And what is the story that precedes uh, the moment in which our production begins? You're exactly correct. So uh, for those of you who don't know, there are actually four operas which make up the ring intended to be done on usually four consecutive nights. But we're just doing the uh, the last installment, Gotodemrung the fourth. Uh, but I'll just give you a little history about the ring for those of you who might not be familiar. Now, we begin with Erda. Erda is the Mother Earth. She introduces us to the story of a golden ring which gives eternal power to whoever possesses it. The ring was made from gold stolen from the depths of the river. Now the chief god Votan, who desires omniscient power above everything else, is so desperate to possess this ring that he has created Siegfried as a warrior to claim it. For generations, gods and giants have fought for the possession of the ring, and many have died in their power-hungry pursuit. It is up to Brunhilde, Erda's daughter, who is destined to bring about the end of this struggle. Brunhilde's lover, Siegfried, as a token of his love, gives Brunhilde this ring. The only hope for humanity is for the ring to be restored to nature, back to the river where it was first stolen. After Siegfried is murdered by Hagen, Brunhilde mounts her horse, Grana, and prepares to ride it into Siegfried's funeral pyre, an act that precipitates the return of the ring to the river. Now the fire incinerates everything with the hope that a new, better world will arise. I just, I love this story, you know, for those uh, who love sort of fantasy, either in your literature or in your film, I'm sure that you're hearing things that hearken to uh, Lord of the Rings. Uh, certainly Tolkien was aware of Wagner's ring, uh, you know, working from some of that same mythology, you know, some of that same history to craft his epic. I, I just feel like there's something inherent in us that, you know, looks to this history and to these, you know, epic tales of who we are and where we came from and what we fight for and what's important. And and I think that's evident in um, just in the in the way that the ring has endured. You know, Wagner's music and this story has just continued to endure, um, and we get to experience one more iteration of that. I think it's so exciting. Indeed, you know, you can see some definitely some parallels. You know, Wagner, uh, this opera is in response to the the greed and corruption that he saw uh, in the Industrial Revolution, the industrial society that was going on uh, around him, and this idea that uh, we can still find salvation ultimately uh, through love and sacrifice. You're exactly right. 
you know, and I think uh, I'm excited to speak with uh, the artists, some of the artists who are going to be bringing this epic story to life. Uh, as we mentioned, we have two guests today, uh, one of the performers from the production and uh, one of the writers who's contributing material. And Arthur, uh, I'm hoping you can tell us uh, a little bit about our first guest today. We are thrilled to be joined by the American tenor who hails from Pennsylvania of Sri Lankan heritage. He completed his musical studies at the University of Michigan with a bachelor's and master's degree in vocal performance. He joined the Merrillet training program with the San Francisco Opera and later became an Adler Fellow with the company. He's gone on to make prestigious debuts at national and international opera houses, including the Washington National Opera, the Teatro La Scala, the Comitia Opera Berlin, the Salzburg Festival, and the Metropolitan Opera House in New York City. Uh, he has appeared in traditional operas of uh, Donizetti, Mozart, Beethoven, Puccini, Verdi, Wagner, and Tchaikovsky, as well as operas from modern and contemporary composers such as Adams, Glass, and Ricky Ian Gordon. Uh, for Michigan Opera Theater, he bowed as Rodolfo in La Boheme in 2015 and as Wendell Smith in The Summer King in 2018. And we are just so happy and thrilled that he has joined us. Welcome, Mr. Sean Panikar. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We are thrilled you have joined us. We want to welcome you back to MOT as you assume the role uh, of the hero Siegfried in Twilight Gods, uh, our production of Wagner's last installment of The Ring, uh, Gott Dämmerung. Uh, tell us, how did you become involved in this project? Uh, and when you heard this project was being done outside at the Michigan Opera Theater parking structure uh, due to COVID concerns, of course, and social distancing, uh, how did that play into your final decision to sign on? Well, I heard about this a couple months ago, actually, um, and it was a project that immediately piqued my interest. First and foremost, uh, theaters in the United States are closed, so uh, most of us are without work, and the fact that this was at home, I live outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, in Saline, and it, it really piqued my interest because not only was it a unique way of presenting an opera, but it was a way that could reach audiences and bring live art back to people, which is something that I think everybody's missing. I think one of the, the huge holes that has been left in everybody's lives is the, the absence of art. And in the pandemic, you know, there's been a lot of things that people have been trying to bring back, but art seems to be the, one of the once it's last to come back. And it's, it's really sad because people really miss it. And I'm just so thankful that Michigan Opera Theater has taken this step to be innovative and step outside of the box and still find a way to present uh, meaningful art to the community of Detroit. And uh, with Yuval Sharon, I, I met him for the first time in Los Angeles last, I guess last fall now, uh, just kind of by coincidence. I was singing Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde with the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. And he happened to be a good friend of Matthias Pincher, who was the conductor. And so he came to the post-show dinner and uh, I sat down with him and it was my first meeting with him and I was immediately captivated with him. Everybody who meets him, he has this joy that radiates from him and he is so excited about any project that he does and just about life. And I, I love people that go through life with the joy that he has. And so I, I immediately left that dinner and I called my manager. I said, I don't know if there's anything that's ever going to come up with you, Val, but I would absolutely love to work with him. And then fast forward to this past summer when this was all coming up and the opportunity to work with Yuval at Michigan Opera Theater, which already has a special place in my heart. Um, it was just impossible to pass up. So thrilled to be here. The, the start of my career, my first professional job was singing in the Opera Theater Chorus 
with Suzanne Acton. So uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, I wanted to see what opera was like in a professional environment. I auditioned for the chorus and I did La Boheme as my first job in the chorus. And it's been an incredible journey ever since. I fell in love with the art form then and it's taken me all over the world and it's been uh, an amazing journey. That's amazing. We're uh, just so glad to have you, you know, with us. It must feel a little bit like a homecoming. And, um, you know, we're certainly glad that you are part of this project and part of the MOT family, without a doubt. Um, for those who are not as familiar with Wagner's Ring, Sean, can you tell us a little bit about Siegfried and his journey in this very epic story? Sure. Well, one of the great things about this particular production is, you know, I had a chance to sit down with, with Martian Music, who is the poet that's involved with this project. Uh, this is a show where you can come and not know anything about what is happening and you will get told the story in the most clear way you will ever get the story. The ring cycle itself is very complicated. There's so many characters. All of the characters are so complex. It's not just good and evil. It's, it's this mix of just flawed people uh, seeking ultimate power. And so if you try to experience the ring cycle on its own, it's just, it's so hard to get on a first listen through or a first watch. But in, in our version here with, with Yuval and Marsha, what they've done is they've put it together in a way that really is accessible. And I know that's something that gets tossed out a lot when opera companies are trying to reach out to an audience, but it is truly accessible. With Siegfried, in a more broader sense, Siegfried is a hero. He wants to be the hero. He's very impetuous. He's fearless. Uh, and in Götterdämmerung and Twilight Gods, he is manipulated through kind of, it's not even his own fault. He, he unwittingly takes a potion that causes him to do all sorts of terrible things. And then he takes a potion that makes him remember who he actually was. And only on his deathbed does he realize what he's done. But the, the beautiful thing about this opera is you don't have to show up knowing anything. And I think that's one of the things that, that kind of drives me crazy about the opera audience is that so many of them think that they need to study in order to see a show. And I can't think of any form of entertainment other than opera where an audience member would say, I want to know how this ends before they show up. You don't want to read a synopsis of a book and know how the book ends before you start reading it. You don't want to know how a movie ends before you watch it. But for some reason with opera, a lot of people are unwilling to just take that step and just experience it because they're afraid they won't get it. And that's just simply not the case now. <laughs> we present operas just like theater. And you can go and experience it the same way you would experience any other form of entertainment and just watch it unfold in front of you and experience it live. So my advice to people with this production is to come in and experience it. We're doing it in English, which is great. Uh, Marsha Music presents interludes between each kind of scene that we're doing. Uh, and it will be so clear to you what the story is. And you will experience this opera unlike any other opera you've ever seen. Wow, fantastic. You know, I was just thinking of you. I spoke uh, with uh, tenor Roberto Alagna a few weeks back. Uh, he's another tenor who's just done a wide variety of repertoire uh, continuously. You know, he's doing bel canto with his lyric roles, his heavier roles. Uh, and so I'm looking at your uh, repertoire as well. You've done, you know, you have bel canto, lyric, dramatic repertoire, a lot of contemporary modern opera, a lot of things in English, especially you're known for your, uh, you know, fantastic diction. Were there any particular challenges or advantages presenting this particular role uh, in English and in this format? I think English is great. There are a lot of singers that kind of shy away from it because well, I mean, English and German 
they don't necessarily lend themselves to beautiful singing the way that French and Italian does, because those languages have such an emphasis on the vowels, whereas English and German are more consonant-based. But I think clarity of language, regardless of what language you're in, always serves the story. So even when I'm singing in Czech, which is crazy with consonants, it's always about trying to make it as authentic as possible in a way that a native speaker would understand what you're saying. And that's one of the things that I really pride myself on is when somebody in an audience will come up to me and start speaking in, a, in another language that I don't speak, because that means that I've done my job well. And with English, it's the same thing. It's just a lot of uh, American singers in particular, we don't think about the diction as much because we're native speakers. So we don't invest the time in studying the actual pronunciation the way we would if something was in Italian or German, where we have to actually study to make sure we're doing it right. We have been speaking English since we were children, so we think we know what to do when we're singing. Uh, but singing in English is very different than speaking English. So going for clarity is always important. I'm constantly asking the conductor or music staff what they didn't understand if there was anything that they didn't understand so I can make it more clear. Uh, and the beauty about this production is because you're hearing it through the radio uh, and we're wearing body microphones, it's going to be crystal clear and I don't think you're going to miss any of the text. And so obviously we're doing it in English. There are no super titles as there would be in an opera house. So clarity of what we are saying and communicating is extremely important. And I think it, it breaks down just another one of those walls that a lot of people have their misconceptions about opera not being able to understand it. I think this way you will definitely understand the story, you will understand all of our text, uh, and it will be crystal clear. Now you've gained a legion of fans from your work in the three tenor crossover group Forte, which you debuted on America's Got Talent back in 2013. Um, what has that association meant for you and uh, for the state of opera in America more broadly? Well, Forte, that was an amazing, amazing experience and one that I couldn't have ever dreamt of. I had been, at the time, I had been working nonstop. I had two young children. My children are older now. My daughter just turned 12 and my son just turned nine. But I had been working so much, which is a good problem to have. I'm not complaining about that. But with my manager, I had planned to take a summer off just to be home and be, you know, a husband and father and just kind of relax and enjoy the summer. And I had just finished uh, a La Boheme in Fort Worth. And I got a call saying that these three guys were competing on America's Got Talent. They'd already finished the first round, but one of their members had a visa issue and they were either going to get kicked off the show or they could replace the singer. And so they had randomly found me online. And I do not consider myself a crossover tenor at all. So I, I let them know that. I'm like, yeah, I'm not a crossover singer. I don't sing pop music. I sing opera music. And that's what they wanted. They wanted uh, somebody that was working an actual working opera singer. And so I, I was like, well, okay, I, I guess I'll do it. I thought there would be only one round. I didn't think this would work at all. My, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, the three tenors, right? You had Jose Carreras and Placido and, and Pavarotti, and, and that was an amazing thing. And then so many people tried to copy that, and it was all just horrible versions <laughs> of that. And so this was not something that appealed to me at all. But, uh, but the thought of going on national television, I thought that would be, be kind of fun. So I went and we did it. And I had never met the guys in person. We showed up in the first round was in Las Vegas, walked out. The first time we actually sang it, they didn't allow us to warm up together. They didn't allow us to practice together. We were literally in a conference room with children, ballroom dancers and clowns and acrobats. And so 
the first time we actually sang together as a group was in front of the judges. So it's like you walk out on stage, there's cameras on, it's Heidi Klum, Howard Stern, uh, Howie Mandel, and Mel B from the Spice Girls. And we just open our mouth and see what happens. And it happened to work. And we just kept advancing and advancing and advancing. And the reach that the group had on America's Got Talent was something that I could never have imagined. And, you know, we're so often told that that classical music is dying and nobody really likes the classical style of singing. But if you actually present it to a wide audience, if there's something about it that captivates them in a very visceral way. And so even though we weren't necessarily singing opera, we were singing classically and it impacted people's lives. And there were people that started showing up to my operas because of that. Um, and so we've done two albums. We're working on some Christmas music right now. Uh, and it, it's just a way to expand the reach of the art form to a younger audience. And I think it definitely serves opera well when there are groups like ours that can go out and present classical singing in a new way that will draw you into the theater. I was going to say, Sean, I remember my aunt called me saying, who's that handsome tenor uh, with the you know, matinee good looks who actually has a good voice? Who is that? And I remember trying to find out, and I realized it was you <laughs> from that first performance. It was pretty, pretty neat. Oh, thank uh, you, had, you. You had mentioned earlier, of course, that you make your home in Michigan. How have you and your family navigated this new reality of this, uh, this COVID pandemic where so many of the you know, performing opportunities, as you mentioned earlier, have just dried up, have been so deeply impacted by this, uh, by this pandemic. Yeah, it's been, it's been a struggle, I think, for every opera singer uh, and families, well, not just opera singers, but everybody in general, because everybody's working at home. When this all came down, I was in March, I was in Amsterdam getting ready to open the rise and fall of the city of Mahagoni with Dutch National Opera. We were in our penultimate dress rehearsal and word came down that the government was shutting everything down. And it was just like a mad dash to, to get out of the country and get home. And I, like many others, just assumed that this pandemic was going to be over shortly, maybe a few months, and we'd be back to work by the fall, definitely by the fall. I didn't think we'd be uh, into the fall and still in the situation that we're in. But short term, I was kind of happy. I have been on the road so much. And with, with two young children and, and being away, it's, it's something that, I, I tried to focus on the positive. I, I really do try to focus on the positive and, and getting this time to spend with my daughter, Maria, my son, Mark, my wife, Jane. We have a dog, Patty, who we got that I uh, had only been around for about a month because when we got her as a puppy, I just started working. So getting that time with family has been invaluable and it's something that I think looking back will be a time that we can truly cherish and value. It's been professionally a struggle just because there's just the loss of work. and. Fortunately, Europe is starting to open up again, but the United States, I, I, I think Michigan Opera Theater, somebody said it is one of three companies presenting opera live in the country. So what is that? that? That's something where I feel like so many people could have taken this opportunity to think outside the box and move outside of the theater. Uh, and I really give credit to, to Wayne Brown and Yuval for thinking this way and getting something out there for the audiences. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so looking forward to your performance in Twilight Gods. Thank you again. Thanks so much. 
What a treat it was to speak to a fellow Michigander who's right in our own backyard here. Definitely. This production is, uh, is filled with local talent. And uh, I'm so excited to welcome our second guest today, uh, also another local personality. She was born in Detroit and grew up in Highland Park, Michigan, the daughter of legendary pre-Motown record producer, the late Joe Von Battle. Uh, and she is a self-described primordial Detroiter and a Detroitist. She became an activist in her early teens in the social turmoil of the late 60s and was a founding member of the iconic League of Revolutionary Black Workers. She was later a labor union president, the first black president, the first female president, and the youngest president in her local union's history. Through it all, she's been a writer, penning essays, poems, and narratives about the city's music and its past and future. She's a self-educated scholar, a noted speaker and presenter, and has contributed to a number of anthologies, narratives, films, and oral histories, as well as an HBO documentary. She was awarded a 2012 Kresge Literary Arts Fellowship, as well as a 2015 Night Arts Challenge Award. She was a 2015 Ideas City Detroit Fellow, and that same year she was commissioned to create a poem about Detroit for the acclaimed Symphony in D, which she read in performances with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. She joins Twilight Gods in the role of both poet and performer, contributing new material to this reimagining of Wagner's work and lending her voice to the role of Erda. Please join me in joyfully welcoming Miss Marsha Music. Why, thank you very much. Well, we're so glad to be speaking with you today. So glad that you are joining MOT for Twilight Gods. Um, it's just a thrill. Thank you. It certainly is. Thank you. I I would say, Marsha, my first question to you would be, what would be, you know, you grew up completely surrounded by music. Can you tell us about your early years in Detroit uh, and the huge role that music played in your family life? Well, first of all, my father, who was Joe Von Battle, he owned a record store on Old Hastings Street. And he opened that store in 1948. And he specialized in blues music uh, because he... Uh, wanted to tap the market of African-Americans who were still, even by the late 1940s, uh, coming in droves to Detroit, especially from the southern states. They were escaping Jim Crow and the tremendous repression that existed there in the areas in which they lived. And they were settling here in Detroit, mainly in an area called Black Bottom. And Black Bottom uh, was the repository of so many people, not only Blacks from the South, but immigrants from all over the world who came here, whose first point of entry and residence, many of them experienced as being in Black Bottom. In this area was replete with, with music, with people's cultural legacy, and my dad set up his record shop there. So uh, I was not born until the mid-1950s. By that time, he, he was firmly established there and, in fact, was a, a very big man on Hastings Street. So I grew up in this atmosphere of visiting the record shop. And where did I visit from? I visited from my home in Highland Park. My dad bought my mom a home in Highland Park, and this is where we grew up. That area was generally viewed as a suburb. It was technically a suburb of Detroit and regarded that way during the years that I grew up there. And so I grew up in this very lush, thoroughly middle-class area. 
And so I was the recipient of some of the best public education that tax money could buy. Mm. So I grew up in an atmosphere of very good public education, which meant an extremely developed musical education, which meant that I had an exposure to all kinds of music. And in my father's record store on Hastings Street, which was a few miles away, three, three or four miles away, Hastings Street was a much more rough and tumble type of situation, uh, a much more street kind of atmosphere situation, commercial, commercial area. And my dad sold the blues, but he also sold opera because opera at the, in, during those times of the mid 40s and 50s was still, was extremely popular in American popular music. And as in all popular forms, Blacks also listened to some opera music because that is what was available on the radio airwaves. And so there are old photographs of my dad that show that in his record store, he had giant photographs of Marian Anderson and Mario Lanza and Maria Callas. Uh, these were uh, the stars, the opera stars of the time. So I would imagine I must have been heavily influenced even by the presence of operatic icons in the record store. But my growing up was around Motown and the really the some of the symphonic works that were incorporated into the Motown sound. Detroit is a very cosmopolitan kind of place for music. Music is a synergy here of a number of musical forms. And so uh, I had a great uh, amount of influences. Well, I was going to ask, since you did have experience with opera at, uh, at an early age, is there a particular experience with uh, any, whether it's of Marian Anderson or Mario Lanza you spoke about or Carlos, is there anything that particularly sticks out in your memory or maybe as a first experience uh, with opera? Hmm. Well, actually, it is a poetic uh, reference. And I recall that Smokey Robinson, who was, you know, the, the uh, premier writer of Motown music uh, and is regarded as really an international poet, um, Smokey Robinson had a line in a song, uh, I think it's Tears of a Clown, in which he said, just like Pagliacci did, I like to keep my sadness hid. Uh, it's a line, something like that. And just that line alone, I was so curious about what is he talking about? Who is he talking about? And so, you know, that made me uh, very curious about uh, the, the background of that character. So I, I think that uh, Mario, Mario Lanza was something that was played on the radio, you know, so I sort of knew, you know, somewhat about his songs. I didn't visit the opera. Of course, uh, the opera was not open here in Detroit for many years. And so there was not a way to access it that way in the opera house. But I remember going to an opening of the opera house, not the opening, but in the first opening weeks, there were events, you know, that were there celebrating this profound result of the work of uh, Mr. DiCieri. And I remember being at one of those very early 
openings. Uh, although I was I was a grown woman by then. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, there would have been 1996 with the uh, great Luciano Pavarotti who opened our house. So, yeah, some great yes. memories. Yes, yes, yes. It's unbelievable stuff. Yeah. So, Marsha, obviously music was huge in your childhood throughout your life, your father's record store. You know, I've heard you mention, you know, the love of gospel from your mother. Um, but there were many other formative influences in your early years. Um, you got involved as a young teen with the labor rights movement in Detroit. In your introduction, I referenced the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which you were a part of. You were a union leader. Later, you worked in the court system. In the midst of all of this, I'm wondering where the writing started. Was writing for you an outgrowth of your social justice work, or did they develop kind of alongside but independent of one another? Uh, no, actually, uh, I have been a writer since uh, I was a child. Uh, I was mm. a voracious reader as a child, and I began writing very early on, and I remember uh, in about maybe third grade or fourth grade uh, winning some kind of school competition. Uh, that was uh, maybe uh, beyond my school. It could have been a state competition. I'm not sure. But I remember winning this competition. And I had written this poem called I Love Michigan. And I was very proud of that poem. But the thing that I remember about the poem, because I do not remember one line of the poem, I remember my dad allowing me to read some of my poem on his radio show. And that mm. was just beyond. <laughs> that was just an honor beyond honors. And uh, so that is what I remember about that. But I have been a writer really all of my life, uh, writing from the early childhood writing to I began to write social things as a teenager uh, because we were in the midst of the real social turmoil and upheaval of the 1960s. And by that time, I had become a young activist, like the young activists today. And I uh, began writing about the, the social maelstrom that I saw around me. And so, Marcia, can you tell us, how did you come to be involved in this project with Twilight Gods? Had you, um, had you collaborated in opera before? Did you imagine you'd be working with uh, the Detroit Opera House and Michigan Opera Theater? Never in my wildest dreams. Uh, I, I say uh, to people even today, sometimes you can have dreams answered that you didn't even know you had. And this would be one of those. Uh, I never had a, a, a sense of working for the opera before, although I had uh, been featured in a project at the Detroit Symphony, uh, which was a, a really spectacular project called Symphony in D. And the composer, Todd Macover had uh, commissioned me to write a poem that encapsulated the entire history of Detroit in five minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh, <laughs> no small task. Yeah, like, oh, okay, and, uh, <laughs> and I did it, but I did it. And uh, that, that poem uh, ended up being called in, in the symphony program, Memory and Dreams. And I was very proud that after that production, that performance, uh, the Detroit Free Press used it as the uh, op-ed uh, for that week for that weekend. Uh, they they used it in lieu of other opinion pieces for that day. And uh, I uh, had done that piece with the symphony, and I've done a, a number of uh, important readings. I would say. Uh, but it never occurred to me uh, that I would do anything with the opera. 
I, I love the opera. I love coming to the opera and have come several times over the, the recent years. And this summer, in the midst now of this COVID situation, had been in the uh, throes of dealing with having to return to work and was contemplating retirement. And I was uh, really in the process of thinking through, is it time to retire? Uh, I have worked in the courts for almost 30 years, in the circuit court. And I was thinking about what I should do and uh, was preparing by that point. And I got a phone call from uh, Mr. Gary Wasserman. I had done a couple of major readings of my work at his gallery, Wasserman Gallery in the Eastern Market. And he called me one day and said, Marcia, um, I have a, a question. Would you consider doing a project with the Michigan Opera Theater? And I was, well, tell me about it. And he said, well, uh, I, I, I would like you to talk to the person who is the composer, uh, but I think uh, you would be the perfect person. He said, uh, this is going to involve being a, somewhat of a narrator uh, of, a, of an opera. And I was asked, did I know anyone here in Detroit that could do justice to this part? And he said, my immediate thought was you. Uh, Marcia Music. And I said, well, I said, uh, thank you for that, uh, that vote of confidence, uh, and I will uh, get in touch with this person. And that's how I came to know Yuval Sharon and hit it off with him before immediately. Just, uh, <laughs> he, 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 and I, he and I just, just clicked. And that is how I became uh, involved in this project. That's amazing. You know, Yuval uh, has provided his own English translation of the libretto for this version of Twilight Gods. Um, in contributing poetry, did you intentionally work to try to match his style or to create something that was complementary? Um, or did you work entirely on your own to create this new poetry? Uh, a combination of both. Uh, at, at that time, uh, he had not even shown it to me. He had not even exposed to me the libretto at all. I think thinking about not influencing me with what he had written for the libretto. He wanted me to independently, I think, come up with uh, words from my voice, from my own voice, not influenced by what he had already written. And so I think that's why he never showed it to me. So what I had to do was have somewhat of a immersion, an autodidactic immersion into the world of Wagner and into the world of the ring cycle. And that has been one of the most astounding and fun things that I've done in a long time. And now I think that I am a certified ring head. Yes. Uh, I, 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 I'm going to end up like following this stuff now forever because uh, it's fascinating to me. And what became fascinating to me as I began to write about it, it seems like it's really nonsensical, just this, this constant maelstrom of uh, stuff these people are doing all the time and all of these different characters and all of these different people. But in reality, there's a lot of method to that madness. And what I wanted to capture was the human condition of it all. Mm. The, the plain 
transcendent humanity that is in these myriad of stories that are being told. So Marcia, so you not only are in this case offering new poetic material for this project, but you're also playing a role, the, uh, the role uh, of the earth goddess Erda. She is, of course, also the mother of uh, Brunhilde. And you're doing all of this uh, in the sort of dealing with the juxtaposition of being, of course, narrowing this earth mother, but also doing this story against the Detroit's industrial history and backdrop. Could you tell us, like, how did the city of Detroit inform your work on this project? I had to resist the temptation to really Detroitize the work. I didn't want to create a kind of Detroited ring cycle, per se. What I wanted to do was to tell this transcendent story from a Detroit voice, which is my voice. And so therefore, it's not a work that encapsulates a lot of references or conceptualizations of Detroit, but it's the twilight of the gods through the eyes of a Detroiter, through the eyes of a person who has lived and has lived experience and understands what is going on with these characters. So I would put it that way. Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> that's amazing, Marcia. And I think, you know, you're referencing the fact that this narrator, you know, Erda has seen events unfold over many years. She's this wise storyteller. She has that lived experience, as you say. Um, and I mean, clearly that's you to a T. Um, I've read before that if Detroit had an official griot, uh, that position would be yours. <laughs> um, and uh, I will. Well, <laughs> well, bless your heart. You know, uh, uh, that was one thing that was uh, kind of amusing about the whole thing. It, it's not like uh, the, 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 the queen role was a big stretch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, I wonder, I mean, do you comfortably claim that title as Griot of Detroit? And I wonder if you can talk about, um, you know, what it means to you to be so rooted in place and to preserve and to pass on Detroit's history as you do. Well, um, I uh, am self-identified as a Detroitist. Uh, I uh, began to use that term uh, self-descriptively. Uh, and it is sort of my moniker or my brand. I am the Detroitist. Uh, other people can be Detroitist, but I am the Detroitist. And I carved out a niche of working through some of the very complex aspects of life in Detroit, of race, of change, of uh, looking at Detroit through the lens of a person who has grown up in the mid-century and looking at the importance of the mid-century period and claiming, as I do, a certain level of expertise uh, on Detroit that is often denied uh, those of us, particularly African-Americans, who have remained in Detroit and who have been witness to the changes, but also witness to the tremendous dynamism of Detroit uh, in the last mid-century. And we were here in order to see some of this and to be able to, as many of us are writers and griots, if you, if you will, uh, people who uh, tell stories, to talk about this time that is often denied us, 
uh, as if we are invisible. So I began some years ago to react to this feeling that Detroiters who had been here, what we call longtime Detroiters, were being treated as invisible. They did not really exist in the eyes of the new Detroit. And I began to uh, remonstrate against that and to make it clear that we are not invisible and in fact we are the repository of the history of this last period in Detroit, this last period, beginning in the mid-century period and all of its great musical inventiveness and its industrial might. And so that is how I've become very much uh, spatially oriented to Detroit as a physical phenomenon. I love Detroit. And I have been able to articulate the history of the city as I understand it to many people, even those who left in such a way as to not cast blame upon those who either left or uh, had other relationship with the city, but to see where responsibilities lie regarding this splitting uh, of the community in Detroit, which I think is very important. Yeah. Yeah. I love what you say about um, where the responsibility lies in that. I just think that's so powerful. Marsha, I wish that we had all day to talk. This has been an amazing conversation. I hope it's the first of many conversations that we're able to have um, to come. But for today, I want to thank you so much for your time, for being with us. Um, and uh, we're so excited about the opening of this Twilight Gods. Well, you are excited. You cannot be any more excited than I am. This is just, it's going to be so wonderful. I, I'm so excited and I'm excited about what I was able to uh, pull out of my head. Yes. Well, we're looking forward to uh, your voice uh, guiding us through the experience um, in the Detroit you. Opera House parking garage. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And we want to also thank Jake Neer for his help in producing today's podcast and to recognize and thank our sponsors, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Ford Motor Company Fund for their support. And of course, we want to thank you for tuning in to today's Opera Here podcast and for taking part in our MOT at Home initiative. Please keep checking back for more podcasts, performances, playlists, blog posts, and more. To find more information on MOT at Home or to learn more about Twilight Gods, visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also connect with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to everyone listening, and we can't wait to see you at the opera.